0: This is an audio transfer of a presentation given by Dr. John Mack. It was given at the Laughlin UFO Conference uh, called the International UFO Congress, and this would have taken place in 2003, about a year before he died. Uh, This audio track was lifted directly from uh, a YouTube video. Well, let me clarify that, a series of YouTube videos. A series of YouTube videos. Uh, it was broken up into 12 separate 10 minute parts, and I uh, ganged them all up and put them on one audio track. Uh, I thought it was interesting. Now, at the very beginning, you're going to hear Bob Brown's voice. He's the uh, person who introduces everyone uh, at the conference. Then you'll hear uh, Dr. Mack giving his presentation. Now, initially, he is showing some slides, and the slides have text on them. He'll read from the text, and there are some somewhat lengthy pauses as he gives the audience the chance to read the slide on the screen. I went back and cleaned those up. You will sense those pauses. They're a little bit shorter. Uh, at the very end, there's some question and answers that go on. Uh, this, this will give you a pretty good insight on what's involved in going to a UFO conference. Oh, and, and one more thing. I, uh, I chime in. At one point during the presentation, John shows some. uh, He gives the top ten reasons that you might be a UFO abductee. It's played for comedy. It was a uh, visual joke, which wouldn't make any sense at all to you, the listener. So I, I stepped in and uh, read aloud from the uh, the the presentation slides. Uh, I actually um, part of the reason I did this is because I know. Uh, the fellow who created those slides. And uh, it was pretty heartwarming. Uh, you could see John was a little bit charmed and a little bit embarrassed to go through that. And uh, and I give my, uh, my friend some credit um, that he forced John to, you know, play it for comedy a little bit. Uh, this presentation is titled Transcending the Dualistic Mind, and it is given by John Mack at the 2003 International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada. Please enjoy.
1: We've asked Professor John Mack on a couple of occasions to come and address the Congress, and at long last, um, he's made it here. Yeah. So Professor Mack is, is kind of an icon, I would say, in the field of abduction research. And the reason that he is is because he's probably the most heavily credentialed, most public guy that has come forward with his work in this phenomena. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that his findings and his research is any more valid than anybody else's? No, it doesn't. But what it does mean is that even though it's not fair, it's not accurate, it's not right, his findings may mean more. Than anyone else's when they're released and because of the fact that when John Mack talks people listen they can't ignore it he puts so much on the line because of this a doctor a department head they tried to crucify him they did They tried to put him on the street. Thank God it didn't happen for all of us and especially for John. But this is what he risked, and I want all of you to be aware of it. And you know, guys, just because the big flack about trying to get him removed is over, the truth is every time he comes to talk to anyone publicly about these subjects, he puts it on the line. He's risking it all for the truth John Mack. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Bob. Um, I want to thank Bob and Terry, and uh, also especially uh, Melanie and Jim Rogers of the Technical crew uh, only—they know what they've had to put up with with me uh, as a um, somebody uh, relatively in the stone age when it comes to certain kinds of technologies. Uh, so I—I uh, I feel this conference uh, is much is about much more than UFOs. Um, it has been subjects that. that are not simply UFO-related, like the communications from uh, the other dimension on electronic media or uh, the discussions of of energy. But beyond that, there's a meaning here that translates into the world, and that's very much what I want to address in in this talk. I'm going to try to get done... uh, So there's at least 15, 20 minutes for discussion uh, at the end. So that means I'm going to have to go through uh, some of this very quickly. But uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk with you about is uh, elementary to a group like this. But uh, I think, hope, not not all of it will be. Um, One of my... um, most beloved teachers is uh, Eric Erickson, who I guess in our generation was kind of next to Freud and Jung up there among the psychoanalysts, and the way he talked about his work uh, was always very simple, and he said he he had just worked out a way of looking at things. So that's what I'm going to try to do, modeled on that, uh, is present a kind of overview, but a way of looking at things in this field. There'll be many more questions here than answers, Um, and I'm particularly interested in what the obstacles have been to our being more effective in moving our, what we have to say, which is so tremendously important, into the larger world. So, um, well... I guess a word that uh, Rod used on Tuesday is empowerment. I want us to be more empowered somehow and contribute to that. That's, that's a very high uh, priority uh, for me. So then I'm going to also uh, talk a lot about the matter of the reptilians, and I think you'll see how that relates to uh, the overview. But I want to use that as an example uh, of a subject that, invites the complex thinking which I believe is essential in this in this field. And then at the end I'm going to try to pull this together to what was said in the program I was going to talk about, which is what this all has to do with the present crisis and the world and dualistic thinking and, and all that. Uh, before I overlook this, I want to thank... Uh, one of the people back home, uh, Will Boucher, who's our webmaster for his help in uh, providing the graphics for the slides. I'm responsible for the content, but he's responsible for some of the, I think, quite beautiful and sometimes slightly wacky uh, graphics that you're going to see. So let's move into this. Why is the subject of UFOs and alien encounters important? I put the word alien in quotes because I, I don't want to prejudice this subject by using words that have a certain kind of connotation for us. An alien is somebody who comes from a foreign land, usually somebody you don't want to cross your borders. Uh, and I, I want to avoid any language of, of that kind. Here are some of the reasons. If we're not alone in the universe, this is a matter of earth-shaking significance. I must have skipped one. That's all right. Uh, There is much to be learned of a scientific, technical, and military nature from the craft and their occupants. The implications for our understanding of human identity, who we really are in the universe, and of reality itself are immense. There are great social, political, and economic implications. Virtually none of our institutions would be unaffected. So what exactly is the alien encounter phenomenon? That may seem like a very elementary question, but you could get quite a good battle going over uh, on over that uh, simple, we think, we know, but uh, I, I think it's worthwhile to go back to basics sometimes Visitation of alien spacecraft from other planets, star systems, or universes, or other dimensions. Well, yeah, probably. The penetration of varying density and intensity into our perceptual fields of images, energies, and objects that are sometimes, but not always, extraterrestrial spacecraft. Encounters with beings and energies that interact with human beings in a variety of ways. Other earth-originated military activity, hoaxes, illusions, delusions, holographic projections from some other place or source, etc. None of the above. I don't know what that means, but I just threw that in there. So what are some of the fundamental questions that we start with? Are UFOs real? Well, to this crowd, that's a no-brainer. Are aliens really abducting people? Well, yeah. Um, We certainly have a lot of evidence that uh, sometimes some people seem to be taken into spacecraft uh, by non- or humanoid beings. But Is it always that? Aren't there sometimes contacts, at least that's true in my experience with this population, many instances where there's a presence, energies, light, communication, where the person is not taken physically into a spacecraft, yet something very vital is happening between the human being and the other Beings involved. Why is this happening? Why are they coming here? Now, the question, uh, Angela raised the question uh, earlier today well, they're not here to save us, uh, or they're not doing it anyway. Um, and that's right, but it, there may be another way of thinking about it. Is what they, for example, they might be opening up our way of relating to each other, to the universe, of knowing ourselves, expanding by the cracking of the way we think to expand consciousness. In that way, that might be the most important thing that they might do. I'm not saying that's what they're here for, but if that happens, uh, it can't be a bad thing. Is this a relatively new phenomenon or an ancient one? That question gets asked a lot, looking back to Ezekiel's wheel and... uh, Other examples where there appear to be something like abductions going on, that we heard about the jinns. Uh, Yet there is something kind of hard edged about the current uh, UFO or alien abduction phenomenon. It it seems to penetrate real hard edged into our reality, affecting uh, very many people. And maybe that has something to do with the current state of of the world. Where do the craft and their occupants come from? Well, we don't know. We don't even know if they come from the physical world as we know it, from another dimension. Um, We kind of know they're here. Maybe they're in our, uh, maybe we're uh, sharing this this space with them in some way. The the Dalai Lama once said to a group of us, uh, those beings, they're very upset. That's why they're here, because we're a, we're disturbing their spiritual and physical environment. What are the beings' intentions? Do they help us? Are they friendly, unfriendly, indifferent, caring, benign, threatening, variable? Well, it depends, sometimes one or another. But more important than that, I think is the invitation they give us, and I'd like to share, that to look at the anthropocentrism of that way of thinking. In other words, it looks at it in terms of are they good to us or not. It doesn't look at what are we up to, and who are we, and could, this be a, could we be a problem, for instance, not only in, uh, on the earth, but in the galaxy, I get some information that we don't, we don't even get. A, the galaxy doesn't think very well of us. I mean, our reputation has extended quite <laughs> far. Um, if the phenomenon is real, what should we humans do about it? Well, we'll come to that, I'll get into that more. It's just gonna throw that out as a question at this point. What is the best way to study the phenomenon? How do we know who or what to believe. I'll address that as I go along uh, with this talk. But I want to get into now this uh, next, the question of the problem of getting this accepted or having people, um, as the last speaker said, when they ask the question, uh, to at least look at the data, at least be willing to open their minds to, to what's there. What What... What closes people's minds? But what, what what's the problem with this subject? Now, you we all have many thoughts about that, but I wanted to lay out some of my own uh, ideas. All right, I just pushed it. Okay, uh, there we are. Uh, why isn't the reality more generally accepted? What are the resistances? Blanket denial. Variously motivated. It's widespread, just... I don't believe it. Doesn't matter what you tell me. Uh, you know, it's not possible. And uh, let's not let's not even talk about it. Now, this this one's more interesting. If UFOs exist, UFOs exist. But the idea that strange beings are abducting people is beyond believing. Now, you've heard about my Harvard uh, entanglement. Um, the uh, Committee that investigated uh, me for fifteen months in ninety four and, and ninety five and i i don 't talk about it a lot but in, in this context i, I think it's uh, it, it's it 's worth uh, thinking about a little bit or uh, telling you a little bit about what what i mean uh, why i 'm bringing this in here um, at one point in the uh, well even at the very beginning when the uh, Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs handed me the letter telling me that there had been some questions raised, probably by wealthy alumni, about uh, what I was doing and so forth. Uh, He said, you know, John, if you, and we were pretty good friends, he said, you know, if you had just said you'd found a new psychiatric uh, condition that we don't know the cause of, you'd have been okay. Uh, It's because you said it meant we might have to think about reality differently that you got into trouble. Now, he didn't realize that he, by saying that, he was coming from the assumption that our knowledge of reality is fixed, and that if you do anything to shake that up, that's deviance or heresy or whatever the words we, we have for those things. Um, at one time, in the, in the course of the case, the lawyer for the president of Harvard said to my lawyer... Well, what do you think it's like for the dean of the Harvard Medical School to watch on Oprah Winfrey, uh, one of his professors, saying that little green men are taking men, women, and children into space? Now, I never... uh, I don't think the dean of the Harvard Medical School ever watched Oprah Winfrey, uh, but... uh, (laughs) Nor have I, of course, ever referred to any of these beings as little green men. But in that statement, you can sense the... Anxiety that this must have stirred up uh, at the higher levels uh, of the university. Now, um, some people may accept a lot of things, but this somehow this phenomenon crosses crosses be the a, a boundary for them. It just goes beyond what they can believe. I've seen that with this. I've seen that also with the with the crop circles. Uh, I have a friend who's a psychology professor who's very open-minded, and she's a person who's done research on hypnosis and non-ordinary states of consciousness, a real explorer. And she totally didn't believe in this whole crop circle thing, and uh, she'd heard a little bit about it. So I showed her some of the pictures, and she looked at that, and she said, I've got no place to put that. Now, she was being honest, because what what she was doing was she was acknowledging the way a worldview prevents anything new from coming in. But most people don't even acknowledge that their worldview is determining what they think, what they feel. They think they're talking about something based on an argument. I mean, the, I don't know about the Billy Myers case, but I sure know that my worldview had no room for... UFOs, something based on an argument. I mean, the, I don't know about the Billy Myers case, but I sure know that my world view had no room for UFOs that showed up, like, right in your face like that. I mean, okay, UFOs off there in those funny little photographs, you know. And you enhance them and you can barely see them you know, all that. But right there, you know, no, I can't go there. So, hoax. Hoax. I believed all the hoax. Well, I don't know, but this was pretty powerful presentation we just heard. Um, The evidence is not sufficient. Well, I don't think that's the central problem. I I think you've heard a huge amount of evidence. You know this field very well. The evidence is overwhelming. Even the physical evidence is overwhelming, never mind the thousands of reports. But that, again, has to do with the worldview matter. Yeah, we should get more evidence. We should keep getting evidence, of course, but that's not the main problem. People say, oh, there's no evidence. You know, you hear that? Oh, there's no evidence. How many times have people said that to you? There's no evidence. They haven't looked. Or if they look, they don't see it. Mark Macy made the point. You remember, he said, when he was talking about this extraordinary matter of these communications coming from the astral and ethereal dimensions, he said... For some people, it doesn't matter. How good the evidence is, it won't make any difference. Now, this is a little different. Our knowledge is insufficient, and the available methods of study are inadequate. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but I, I know there is something to this, in the sense that I don't think, and I'll talk about this more, I don't think we have yet developed a way of knowing that has to do with something like this we're okay about physical evidence if we you know we, we know a good deal about that, but when it comes to something that seems to cut across all our disciplinary boundaries, uh, particularly when we 're dealing primarily with human experience, as well of course as the physical phenomena but there 's a tremendous amount of this that has to do with reports, human experiences, how we know our ways of knowing uh, need to be refined and, and developed further. Can you get the... Yeah. Can you, yeah. Uh, maybe it's happening, but it's too frightening to think about. Um, now, I run into that all the time. Okay, you know, I can buy it, but I don't want to think about it. That, that's too upsetting. That that could be happening, a sense of loss of control, the helplessness. Um, one of my colleagues is very open to this, a psychiatrist named Bill Waterman, invited me to... A, a fancy dinner in which uh, you know gourmet cooking went on. A lot of Boston politicians there, and you know how they want to be friendly with everybody, and you know, well, I guess every place, but particularly in Boston. And, um, and uh, one of them, uh, you know, I got to talking with him and um, a little bit, and he said, "What do you do?" And I said, "Well, I work with people who've uh, had uh, encounters with uh, being the extraterrestrial beings." <laughs> the, there wasn't even a moment of politeness. He. Turned around, said, that's too far out, and walked away. He didn't want to hear anything about it. He didn't care about my vote or my constituency or anything uh, else. So, you know, I mean, part of sanity, I guess, is knowing who to say what to at what time. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't care in this uh, situation. If it's true, we humans are less in control of our destinies than we like to believe and are thereby demoted in the cosmic hierarchy. I think my prejudice shoves through on this one. I, I, uh, yes, <laughs> I think this is a very big one. I, I think that this is a huge, to use, I don't like to use psychiatric terms, but I, I will in this context. It's a huge narcissistic injury to us uh, that, that we aren't maybe the smartest, the most powerful, whatever, that beans can come and go and take us or that they can whiz in and out of our airspace, sometimes not even show up on the radar. I mean, it's just an insult to what we think we do best, which is technology, right? I mean, it gets us right where we live. The phenomenon breaks the game. That is, it threatens virtually every human vested interest. Now, this is fundamentally important. We've heard about the shadow government in the Jonathan Reed case. If you don't believe the Jonathan Reed case, take the one you just heard about Virginia and Brazil and the U.S. government, Brazilian government's collaboration there uh, to intimidate, threaten not let this information get out. And in the last talk, you heard about, you've been hearing about the the, the power greed that goes on, and the threat that this is to the power structure as it is, to so the financial institutions, to practically every institution uh, loses its dominance. If if uh, this, it's as if the whole church of science, of government, of the economic system no longer is the dominant force. Uh, on the planet, and the the resistance to this, the the violent resistance to this is you is we have to really pay attention to it and not be afraid, but be uh, strategic. We have lack a philosophical framework for thinking about something which manifests in our world, but seems not to be of it. Now, this is a subject that I'm very interested in, uh, and I think many people are. Um, We've, we're pretty good in understanding the physical world, and we're, you know, psychologists, psychiatrists um, have learned a lot about the psyche. We've, but the Western enterprise over the last several centuries has, more or less successfully, not not in reality, but as a disciplinary device, has separated the physical world, the material world, from the unseen world, the, the, the deeper world, the implicate order, to use David Bohm, physicist's term. And this phenomenon doesn't seem to respect that boundary. It seems to somehow cross over. It's some kind of third realm. It's not entirely in the physical world. It's not entirely in the non-physical world. It's in both the same time it's sort of paradoxical we don't we're not very sophisticated about thinking in, in those paradoxical terms and I'll, I'll be coming back to that uh, again. All right, what further do we need to know now here um, I'm not when I go through this I'm not saying everyone has to know. All of this. I mean, surely I don't know all the things that I'm going to lay out. I just think these, this is what's relevant to knowledge in this, in this field. How do we better investigate the physical reality of UFOs, abductions, and related phenomena? Well, you've seen, heard some really good work on this. Uh, there's a, a lot more that could be done. There's a need for people from dis- different disciplines, physics, psychology anthropology, history of science, getting together to see if they can understand this more comprehensively so it isn't seen as just operating in in a single uh, discipline. Now, what do we consider to be physical evidence? And what are our standards of evidence? Now, I've been, I was, this is the one they really tried to, you know, really hit me on very hard at, at Harvard and, uh, uh, i mean there 's a great deal of evidence around say physical cuts marks uh, uh, Angela Thompson Smith talked about the uh, uh, circle of, of little lesions that appear, but i can 't, as a physician present that uh, to a medical audience because if there 's a dermatologist in the crowd uh, they 're going to you can imagine the questions they 're going to ask the self infliction and mosquito bites and whatever it 's not true they 're wrong but it, it won't pass uh, as evidence. So a lot of what will pass for us won't there. And I don't know what to do about that except to be as scrupulous and overwhelming. And uh, What was the term that uh, uh, Michael Horn used? Uh, it was uh, that we have to reach an almost higher level. It's a Caesar's wife kind of thing. It has to reach uh, a level where there's just no denying the, the power uh, of the evidence. We can't do controlled experiments. The whole phenomenon won't stay still for us to, you know, take an alien and sit down and five aliens in a row and see how they behave. And, you know, uh, we, we have to do a kind of naturalistic uh, scientific, uh, take the information as it comes. But there are traditions of, of that. And certainly um, uh, uh, astrophysicists know they, they can't set up experiments out there in the cosmos that going to make the you know the comets go where they want them to go and see how they work. you know they have to take study it in its in its natural forms another thing oh, on that last one another thing that I thought about a lot and i i don 't know what this will mean to you all, but it the you're familiar with the concept of the trickster the trickster archetype um, well, the trickster seems to be having a field day in in, in this field i mean uh, just when you have something that looks like really solid physical evidence, pretty soon there's a fight starting between them. You got a whole one group is saying it's a hoax, another group saying it's uh, it's for sure, it's real, and and it's as if there's somebody being amused at our you know uh, hubris in trying to pin this down in physical terms. You know, it's uh, yet I, it doesn't mean we shouldn't study it physically. I just noticed that it looks like the. Uh, trickster is at work often in undermining uh, our very best physical data. We have something good, and then, you know, I, I'll see, this happens to me all the time, i see, oh, wow, this is a great case, you know, wonderful, and I study it, and then and some group comes along and says, oh, it's a big hoax, he's faked it, you know, Billy Meyer's a good example, I mean, a trickster was having a field day with us there, and what the trickster does, uh, fundamentally, there's a great book about the trickster by a guy named Lewis Hyde, and the trickster, basically what, what it does, it's a, a force, an archetype in nature that shakes up a culture when it gets too complacent. That's what it does. It breaks up the forms. You know, Hermes is the ultimate trickster in the Greek mythology. And if we've gotten too kind of restricted into our sort of physical hubris, you know, and we're sort of so focused on small physical proofs, it's going to shake us up and make us look at things differently. That's Uh, Now, a trickster is not a person. A trickster is a kind of god force of a sort or devil force or whatever in nature. How do we evaluate UFO or encounter reports when direct physical observations are not available or possible? Now, for me, this is a, a very important subject, and I... I'll read, the next one is really the same in the same area. And I'll take these together. What is the proper methodology or criteria for examining experiencers' accounts? What constitutes reliability of witnesses in this area? Now, for for someone who works primarily with human experiences, this is a huge subject, and the. It starts out clinically. Okay, but that's not enough. Like clinically, is this person telling the truth? Are they mentally ill? Uh, is this, uh, are they talking about something that really happened to them? Uh, is it a dream? Uh, and I do a clinical evaluation uh, of people. And as you know, uh, I'm on record as many, many times saying uh, that, by and large, uh, experiencers are sound mentally. They've been troubled by what happened to them often, but there's nothing in there personality makeup uh, that a psychiatrist would discover that has anything whatsoever to do uh, with the experiences that they've had, and that's based on a clinical evaluation. But that's not enough. And because you can... I, I notice when I talk to people and I present this clinical reality, if people aren't ready to go there, they're still not going to believe. Or at not take it serious. It's not about believing anything, but it's so i 've gotten interested in this notion, and I actually learned this from the Catholic uh, prelate who 's uh, been mentioned here a couple times, uh, Father Corrado Balducci, who was uh, you know they have this they actually have this in the vatican he 's a retired Vatican demonologist that 's an actual job description in the Vatican you know and you know how seriously they take that kind of thing you know and uh, and uh, at a conference in uh, three years ago in San Marino. He said, why the church takes this uh, encounter phenomenon so seriously? He said, because there seem to be so many reliable witnesses. And we, he went on to say, know a lot about how to evaluate witnesses because we have to decide what miracles. We're always dealing with miracles. So when you're dealing with miracles, you're dealing with miracles reporters. So they know how. They even use psychologists to examine children who see some, you know, apparitions of the Virgin Mary. But uh, they, have, they have very strict criteria for... And a lot of that is intuitive. It's, it's, I asked uh, Rod Skinendore yesterday, well, what do you do in, in Native cultures, to, or in your culture, to decide whether somebody's telling you the truth? He said, well, you go by the reputation that person has, whether it fits into what the tribe already knows and there there's some other thing it's a, there's a kind of sacred quality that a truth teller has that you, you just know that person's telling the truth you can be wrong but there's something that you sense that this is not a this is a person who's telling the truth they they're expressing this with a that they've been someplace they've brought something back uh, that that's it's almost a, like a sacred kind of function in fact i often feel that when experiencers who have that sacred, truth-telling, reliable witness quality get challenged by, you know, media or insulted or whatever. This is unethical to do that. It's unethical to challenge a... It's not just a clinical matter of science. It's an unethical act to contradict someone who is uh, bringing some kind of... uh, truth from a higher dimension. There's a lot more to be said uh, on that subject. Uh, what new discoveries or developments in physics do we need to learn more about? And uh, I certainly don't, I'm not up to date in all of these fields, I don't think any of us are, but these are some of the subjects that are relevant to this. And the physicists that I talk with in the last decade or so, more and more physics is catching up, at least in theory, uh, in its possibilities to explain something that, until the last ten, fifteen years, would be totally outlandish. Sometimes I think that the, the miracles and the new paradigm and uh, of reality and all of that—it's uh, hard to tell where we just don't know enough. We're not sophisticated enough in terms of physics to to, to know uh, one one kind of miracle and and. Uh, new paradigm uh, of reality becomes, gets taken over by a new understanding in physics and technology at at some point. That's supposed to be Schrodinger's cat, I think. That's, uh, again, Will Boucher's uh, imagination, which, again, involves the paradox and quantum mechanics of uh, sometimes the cat in the box. You all know about that. Sometimes it's, how do you know whether it's dead or alive? It can be both dead and alive at the same time, and, you know... Um, I will mention uh, particularly the notion of non locality as uh, an area that I think is immediately apparent as important, which is to do with the fact that people can be influenced or something can change. There can be a relationship between people who are, uh, or between people in an object where nothing passes in between. There's simply a linkage in some way. It started out with subatomic particles, but now it seems to uh, apply in the uh, macrocosm as well that change can occur without there being anything passing in between. In other words, there's a linkage already present. It's related to the, also to the notion of the quantum hologram. That is, that that everything is already there. So in a sense, it's not doesn't require energy to pass. That it's simply what connection shows up at any given time depends on the. Context and the circumstances. The notion of interdimensional travel, for example, Michio Kaku. If any of you have heard him lecture? He's a, a outstanding, brilliant physicist in in New York uh, University, I think he is at now. And he he talks about how uh, you don't really have to think in terms of, well, I can't get here because there's billions and billions of miles and all that. He says it could be that these other dimensions are simply present and, and there can be direct passage from one dimension to another uh, and that these beings, whatever, may have mastered the way to cross dimensions so they aren't dependent on vehicular travel in the primitive forms that we uh, think about. And that way, uh, objects, people can travel or beings can travel infinitely faster than the speed of light. The zero-point energy, again, this is the people discovering that there is a huge amount of energy in space that we didn't know about until recently, and that people are working on ways of harnessing that energy. So, again, the spaceships might travel by somehow taking advantage of the incredible energy that already is present uh, in what was thought to be uh, until recent fairly recent years dead space, what kind of shifts in our philosophical framework or worldview do we need to make to grasp this phenomenon more fully? I've got to keep track of my time here uh, okay, we have till we have about another hour right Something like that. okay. Um, I touched upon this, and um, again, it's, it's a large subject, but I think that at the heart of it is to develop some kind of framework that allows us to live in the paradox of traffic between the unseen world and the material world. In other words, that there can be something that is not of this world, in the material sense, can manifest in the material world. Or it can pass across dimensions and manifest. Or it can be not entirely of this world or of the other world, but of both at the same time. And that's not the way we're generally brought up to think. I mean, I I constantly am going, well, if if it's not... In the physical world, this I get this all the time, I'm sure you do too. If it's not in the physical material world, it must be in the imagination. It must be uh, psychological, that's all. You know, there's no other subtleties, there's no other distinctions that occur. What sort of multidisciplinary collaboration would advance our exploration? Now, again, I can't overstress it importance of multidisciplinary work in this field. No one field can possibly grasp this matter. (laughs) After my Harvard uh, ordeal wound up in uh, the August of 1995, I went to the then chairman of our department, who's long since gone, but he was not friendly to all of this, but I went to him and I... After one of the recommendations of the committee was, I should involve more colleagues in this work. Well, I had tried. I swear, I had really tried. You know, uh, um, it wasn't easy. So I said, uh, you know, I said, Joe, I've tried this, but you know, uh, what what should I do? And uh, so he said, Why don't you do? He wanted to get me out of his office. He said, Why don't you form a multidisciplinary working group? which is what they do in other kind of subjects like this, like sleep or weight loss or memory, things that don't fit into one discipline, and, and form a, a group like that and um, take a look at it. So it took us a while to put it together. We were doing other things. It wasn't entirely because it was so difficult, but we, in April of 1999, we uh, had a meeting at the Harvard Divinity School, appropriately located there, although not sponsored by the Harvard Divinity School. You know, sometimes your best allies are the buildings and grounds departments of the universities, you know. Because <laughs> they just want you to rent the space. They don't care whether you're talking about spaceships or whatever, you know. The academics can can be really mad, but the buildings and grounds department they will always allow you to use their turf. So pick your turf where you want to go, and then you can do anything you want. So the Divinity School was perfect for this. Um, now what happened there was we had professors from inside and outside of Harvard in 10 different about, about 10 different fields: anthropology, history of science, uh, astrophysics, optical physics, psychology, psychiatry, theology, philosophy and you know, other fields. and we looked at this abduction phenomenon in relation to other anomalies and it was quite an interesting conversation they couldn't get they couldn't handle it. You know, everybody saw their little piece of the elephant, and they're trying to get around And finally, the historian of science, who was a very sharp woman, young professor, tenured professor, really uh, done great work, and, and uh, about the afternoon of the second day, she shook her head, having really wrestled with this for uh, a day and a half, she said, John, this is a wily reality. It just wouldn't behave itself. It, it just kept kept getting away. And it could, she couldn't pin it down. She couldn't put it any place, you know. And uh, another thing that happened, uh, she was also the chairperson of a working subgroup. We had about 25 people in all, including six experiencers who were each represented in these subgroups. And um, she chaired the subgroup on light and energy, which is one of the major... We had four or five major divisions of the field, and that was one of them. And she said, you know, at the reporting to the whole group at the end of this, she said, you know, it's a funny thing. She said, we'd start out, you know, we talk about light and energy, and we'd end up talking about God. <laughs> so yeah, right. Um, so... Uh, Interesting things happened when we brought people from all these different disciplines together. So one of the things that emerged from this two days, which is something that I'm very interested in working on myself now, is that we really don't have what might be called a science of human experience. This relates to what we were talking about earlier about the clinical assessment of a witness or the the witnessing phenomenon, or how do we... How do we uh, how do we look at, what are our criteria of knowing human experience when we can't prove it physically? And where also it's, it's participatory. In other words, you won't learn anything about a human being's experience if you stand back and use the subject-object separation that characterizes much of, not the best science, but much science. Uh, because they won't tell you anything. You have to, a clinician who any of you have worked with, experiences. you know, you have to, really deeply enter that person's world, that doesn't mean you're leading them or it doesn't mean that you lose your uh, ability to, to be uh, analytic, but you, you have to enter that energy field in some way. You can't remain completely separate. Well, once you once you've, uh, are engaged in a kind of co-creative participation with a person in bringing about or bringing into being their reality, then... You know, that doesn't, that, that's a different kind of discipline. That's not science as the material science or physical science generally considers uh, science to be. So we, we, don't, we need to develop, I think, uh, a science, what I'm calling a science of human experience. So how can we be more effective in establishing the power of this phenomenon, positively or negatively, and knowledge about it to affect constructive change? Well, I've kind of hinted or indicated what I, what I think about this, and I'll just go through this uh, fairly quickly. I think that uh, one thing is to become more sophisticated in understanding physical evidence and physical laws. Again, the contemporary science uh, will enable us to communicate more effectively with, with scientists. Um, uh, even if it's just to learn the limits of physical laws as we now know them, and be able to speak authoritatively about the limits of of the of what physical science knows, I mean one of my favorite ones, and I'll share this. Just say this here is the the so-called Big Bang theory, right? Well, a lot of people go by that in physics, but it's a very limited theory of the universe. I mean, how it came into being. I mean, if you ask a physicist, and I did ask one of my close colleague physicists, well, what, what about? Before the, the Big Bang, you know, how did, to, how to, you know, what was there, you know? He said, according to our mathematical measurements, that question is not relevant. Okay? <laughs> well, I didn't get to, if, see, you can't be defensive when people do that. You have to realize that you know, there's a mindset there, you know? So uh, the, a lot of the important questions don't yield their, not, never mind, answers, don't even yield deeper questions to the frameworks of the of physics in the, not, again, the last, the most contemporary physics, but sort of traditional um, physics. Learn more about worldviews, scientific and political, and how these shape what we and others can take in. Well, I've, I've spent some time on that. I just, uh, one of my sons, who's very dear and and very wonderful with me about all of this, and he He's, I uh, can't say he's open about it. He just trusts me and you we know, have a very loving relationship. But he said, uh, you know, he was starting out as a lawyer. He said, Dad, he says, I, I just hope that, uh, that I get my career established before they find out I'm your son. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, he knew what the worldview out there was, you know. And, uh, um. One of my friends is a very well-known playwright who writes about spiritual matters in his plays really uh very well known he's written some Broadway plays and that are you know you you would know if I gave you the name of the plays and um and he was raised as a child as a, a pretty devout Roman Catholic and he was educated in the extreme rationalism of the 20s and 30s and um, totally put his Catholicism behind and uh, him and rejected it uh, by and large and became a, uh, well, he actually was a card-carrying person in several ways, but he, he was uh, certainly a, a card-carrying materialist in his thinking, not, not you know, in, ter- in terms of scientific materialism. And, but he noticed in his 60s that he was beginning to drift back into the church, not not becoming a member, but he'd kind of go to mass, you know. He'd get in there, and he. I didn't ask him if he took communion, you know, but but I, but he he went into the into the church, and he would feel something. He'd feel like he was in the presence of something that was much greater than the world that he would left outside. Some kind of. It was intro, It wasn't so much the, what the, priests were saying, but just the. It was a place to contemplate, a place to open his heart to the divine. And he would feel something that was way beyond what he knew outside. As soon as he walked outside, he into the sunlight or uh, the, uh, this world, he, he would sort of put that aside. He'd say, well, that's what I did in there, but that's not what really counts. This is the real world. So I asked him, I said... Bill, I said, why do you make that choice? Why, why do you determine that that world is is not the one that is the true world, and this is the the real world? And he said, Well, he said, this scientific worldview has had a lot more success in establishing itself in its version of reality than the one inside the church has had. Well, think about that. That's uh, is this is. You know, I don't even know what to say about that, but uh, it makes sense. I mean, it has, in a way. It has dominated. The, and if we're going to open to other worldviews, we have to become as rigorous and sophisticated and deep thinking about that that uh, as what has gone into creating this other uh, uh, materialist uh, religion. We need to develop an understanding of what gets called subtle energy Phenomena. I don't think energy is the right word here, but uh, because it's borrows in a sense, it's borrowed from physical um, uh, language. But you know, it's like when people are in a room together and somebody says, "Oh, there's wonderful energy in the room here." You know, well, it feels like okay, energy, but it's not really energy. It's not like you could put a Geiger counter in the middle of the room and the you know the register would go up. It's it's something more subtle, more intangible that you feel. It's not subtle in its impact but it's subtle in terms of whatever it is. We don't know what it is. It's something unknown in a, in a way. Um, so I think maybe a better way of thinking about it would be think of a subtle realm, which would be you know, like we're talking about the etheric realm or the astral world, that that's the subtle realm, and that something that emerges from that realm and manifests in this realm is harder to is hard to study. It, it's not just physical. It's it's got some subtlety to it. We talk about body energy, uh, uh, the body energy field, and uh, but there's some qualities at the body energy field. Barbara Brennan has, uh, uh, who's uh, uh, worked with subtle energies, has a school to study healing and and the use of subtle energies, and he says, she says that. Subtle energies are different from electromagnetic energy because electromagnetic energy tends to be finite. You can use it up in any given situation. But the more you enter the field of subtle energy, the more you employ it, the richer it gets. It grows. It's different than physical energy as as we know it. Um, Paranormal phenomena, parapsychology. People have talked... uh, Angela worked in the Princeton lab where they do... uh, they get they have random number generation, and they show that the that people's uh, emotional states or what's going on, if, if they're all excited about a, a football game, that the the group energy, quote unquote, uh, will affect how the numbers are generated. Nobody knows how that works. It's not like something's passing into the computer the random number just something subtle is occurring there, and and I that kind of connection I think we need to. Understand more about the the power of thought, for example, or prayer to to uh, bring healing. That's very well established now by all kinds of controlled studies. But we don't know how it works. It's not as if you know you're praying for somebody on the other side of the country and and uh, they get it affects them and they get better. But it's not as if something me- measurable. It could be like you put a block between you and that person. It wouldn't work. It, it's not like that. So. Uh, that, that's what I mean by the subtle domain. I uh, expand our epistemology, placing more emphasis on upon intuitive, holistic, and traditional ways uh, of knowing. Um, I, I don't like to defend myself, um, because I think sometimes you lend energy to a criticism or an attack if, it, if you don't feel it's truthful. But I, I have been um, uh, criticized a lot or attacked. It, it's been in the on the internet that I somehow am opposed to Western science or I reject Western science. And this is absolutely not true. I mean, I, I think Western science has accomplished a great deal in, in knowing about the physical world and healthcare, care and uh, weapons development and all kinds of things. And uh, uh, But it's it's limited. Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, when he was coming back from space and he had this spiritual epiphany as he saw the magnificence of the universe around him, and he said, our, our science, as he had learned, is limited. It's incomplete. There's much more to, to what exists, to what we are, that, uh, that we need to, to know about. And he founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California to uh, explore and, and uh, enable that uh, Increase richness of our ways of knowing to to occur. Um, there are a number of writers now who are uh, working um, uh, or being very critical of these limitations of Western science, and um, it, it, a lot of it has to do with its environmental uh, consequence. In other words, if the if if the uh, the universe, the world as we know it, is limited to the physical world, then that gives permission in a sense to rape the earth or do the things that uh, uh, we have been doing over the last uh, several decades through applying, misapplying the technologies of of science. So, that expanded knowledge that we need is something that does involve a, a use a knowledge through the heart, the use of intuition, the opening up to the holistic knowing that traditional peoples uh, have have understood from thousands of years, which we need to return to, not rejecting Western science, but deepening our, our understanding of uh, reality and, and the ways of knowing. Uh, the person that I think is the most... Uh, Uh, brilliant and powerful uh, writer on this subject. is a professor of philosophy and religion at George Washington University by the name of uh, Sayyid Hossein Nasser, N-A-S-R. And I I think it's kind of ironic that he's a a Muslim and he's a tremendously uh, knowledgeable, great, great scholar. And uh, just read you a couple of things that he wrote along these lines because he can say it uh, better than I know how to say it. Uh, he says, for instance, not only is the invisible the invisible an infinite ocean compared to which the visible is like a speck of dust, but it permeates the visible itself. Words, that often the argument is that there is a, that the, this reality, the physical reality, is a, is contained within this large reality, is a subcase, but that the larger realms of existence are vastly greater and that uh, we focused on, on simply this one domain. It is this purely earthly science, earthly man defined by rationalism and humanism who developed 17th century science based on the domination and conquest of nature who sees nature as his enemy and who continues to rape and destroy the natural environment, always in the name of the rights of man, which are seen by him to be absolute. Just one or two more. The total mode, of that total, he refers to that total mode of knowing, which illuminates and transforms the being of the knower, and which already belongs to the eternal now, where the duality of knower and known is transcended. So You get the idea. Again, I've already spoken about the uh, participatory nature of knowing when it comes to human experience. I don't want to spend more time on that. I guess i don 't have to tell this group, but uh, that about the great threat to the techno scientific hubris and the institution that, institutions which sustain it that this phenomenon represents again this is it gets into the multidisciplinary uh, area. I come to see the UFO and alien counter phenomena in relation to other physical and experiential anomalies, in other words. There are other, but again, we tend to be, the near-death people, they have their group. And the dowsers, they have their group. Uh, and uh, the people that study the psi phenomena, uh, paranormal uh, mind-matter connections, they, they have their group. Uh, the people who study reincarnation, they, they have their group. And, but each kind of holds its territory rather sacred, and there's a great need to look at what do all these anomalies have in common? For well, one thing, they all operate in some way outside the ordinary space-time continuum. But there are many other matters that need to be looked at that I think would, if all these groups could get together and didn't hold on, well, I, I can go here but not there, that kind of thing, it, it, it would be um, very effective. Appreciate more the esoteric and sacred nature Uh, of these phenomena. Now, I'm trying to explain what I mean by that. I began to get the idea um, a year or two ago that going in front of groups of people who really weren't able to hear this, uh, these experiences, was not the right thing to do, that there was something, that there's something about this that, that didn't fit. And I, that, when I asked Native people about, who came forward to say, oh, we know about this, I got a lot of support uh, uh, starting in the mid-1990s from uh, Native medicine men who came forward to support me said, we know about this this is uh, i'd say well why why haven't you come forward to, you know before this well they said well they said a lot of reasons for that one is the anthropologist didn't know enough to ask the right questions but the uh, <laughs> but but more fundamentally the matter is sacred we're talking about divine matters here we're not talking about something that can be reduced to let's study it only scientifically again that's not against western science but there there is a different way of respecting this phenomenon, these phenomena that uh, has made me feel that it has a kind of special sort of, it's touched by, by higher, higher forces and that to, to not recognize that and to just present it, let's get it across to people because it's real, you know, is, is a violation in some way uh, of, of what we're dealing with. Again, I've already referred to this, develop better collaboration among ourselves and more effective means of public education, especially the use of the media and public relations. Again, to resist this tendency we have to call each other names, to be divided uh, among ourselves, to any time we can't go there, it somehow becomes a hoax. I'm not saying there are no hoaxes, but have you notice the tendency that... Or something you you know you've gotten you've just gotten to see something as really powerful and effective and it you, you know it strikes you as important and meaningful and you're there and then you read someplace in some UFO journal it's really a hoax and you know how can we possibly evaluate every time somebody says a hoax I have a suspicion that a lot of things that get called hoaxes it's just that it's too good to be true that people can't go there yet which isn't to say that there are no I just think we need to be more sensitive to the way we get divided uh, among ourselves and and argue uh, among ourselves all right now I want to move on to this matter of the case of the reptilians um, and you'll think this is a rapid uh, change of direction and it sort of is for uh, at the moment but uh, not not as much as you'll I hope it won't seem too Far from what I've been talking about. Well, you, you're familiar with the reptilian beings that experiencers encounter. They uh, tend to—I uh, don't know. This uh, Will Boucher threw that one in. I don't vouch for this guy. That's there. I mean, uh, but they—they're described as a tall, powerful, muscular, lizard-like, often with scales and you know, you know, a brow here and sort of a carapace on the chest, and, um, and they're. Uh, Um, Sometimes they're said to not smell good, and um, uh, writer uh, David Chase uh, referred to them as an ancient warrior race, proud, willful, domineering, territorial, physically aggressive, deceptive, emotionally manipulative, sexually intrusive, and potentially cruel. Their craft are Spartan, functional environments. In spite of their bad side, they also show a strong sense of duty and technical ability. And one reptilian was described as compassionate. Well, you know, it's... A, the, so I, I'm just going to quickly tell you a few of the cases that I've had uh, that um, of uh, people that um, have had uh, reptilian... Uh, encounters uh, start with um, Greg. Now, Greg is a um, physician in his 50s, and he has had a lifelong battle with his reptilian beings. They seem to struggle with him for his soul. And he uh, it's hard to know uh, uh, exactly uh, how this began with him, but he uh, uh, this is what I wrote about him uh, at the time that I was working with him. Um, he felt that uh, certain reptilian beings were out to destroy him, seemingly out of a motive of revenge. They would do this by invading his soul and sucking the life energy out of me, out of my soul. It was unbelievably terrifying. He resisted these beings intensely, for he felt certain that his life had a purpose and that he must deal with this darkness and not suffer at the expense of it. But through this struggle, he discovered that the light is much stronger and the battle was actually empowering and even enlightening. He felt a compassion for their pain and didn't want to lose a total connection with them. I think I want in some way to participate in their getting in touch with their souls. He said of them, I don't love what they do to me. I do care for them. And um, Karin, who I wrote about in Passport, um, uh, came upon uh, in one of our sessions, we had many, many sessions, but she, uh, for the first time, encountered what she described as encounters with uh, ugly, scaly, lizard-like beings that seemed in some ways to represent her struggle with some reptilian energies uh, of her own. But then... uh, uh, I spoke with a, a native uh, woman, a Peruvian shaman, uh, about her encounters, and uh, she said, um, in contrast to our kind of um, you know, Judeo-Christian relationship to the reptilian beings, she said that they, the serpent energy, was something uh, that uh, was an energy that she could enter into fully because she felt one uh, with it. Uh, One of my people I've worked with who studies shamanism described um, an encounter with an uh, anaconda-like snake, and it twirled and it twirled and it twirled, and then it became like she was inside uh, of a spaceship. So it was like her encounters with the reptilians was much more uh, of a a kind of uh, spiritual uh, connection. I was struck by Dan McAvoy's comment that the blood samples they took from the, um, this bean that uh, Jonathan Reed, uh, I don't know whether you believe it or not, uh, but he did, he did say that the blood samples had a, a kind of human and reptilian uh, nature to the genome that, that was discovered there. Um, there is a huge range of attitudes that people have toward the reptilian beans, on the whole they don 't have a good reputation um, uh, here 's Donna who i 've worked with for several years who who tends to she tends to have a somewhat victim like relationship to uh, all of her experiences in her, her world. but she described this uh, great distress uh, uh, an encounter with uh, these beans uh, reptilian beans in a cave lizard like beans with the green with the scaly uh, ones with a uh, very thick, uh, uh, a big snout and a, you know, thick, hard uh, chest. And uh, 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 she described at one point like a little dinosaur, like a little T-Rex, very vicious. Um, one of them tried to rape her, she said. And she saw, uh, she described it as like, you know, those dragon, Japanese dragon-type lizards, she said, and... Um, and she said that they, in addition to trying to rape, they, she saw them eating babies. It was it was horrible, I mean, her, her description. But then um, um, I've also worked with people who uh, feel that they are in some way identified with this uh, race of beings, uh, that they uh, represent an ancient race that they are somehow part of or connected with or were once connected with, um, uh, Paul um, described the, uh, his own identification with an ancient race of reptilian beings who were compassionate and understanding, who were able, um, and, and he was able, they, they were akin to the dinosaurs on the earth and had some relationship with them. Now I'll tell you a little bit more about uh, Dana. Uh, Dana is an um, entertainer, uh, now in her early 50s. Who has had a very powerful sexual contact with uh, an alien being, which you would no, or a reptilian being, which was in no way. Um, she was scared at first, but it was an ecstatic experience. It was a powerful connection for her, um, and it uh, it represented for her. Um, it, it she discovered, in in a sense, in this her own uh, warrior uh, energy. She. Um, She said, it was almost as if he were a part of myself who I was meeting in that exchange, that sexual exchange, as if my own energy were incarnated in that fierce warrior and I was really making love with a different reptilian aspect of myself. I feel as if my energy is distinctly reptilian, bold, and warrior-like. Now... um, uh, she she actually has written a manuscript, which isn't published, which uh, is one of the reasons I don't want to identify her. Some of you might be able to. But she's talked about a reptilian hierarchy. She's very familiar with this whole area. There's a huge dra- a dragon-like figure she calls Draco, which is the Greek word for dragon that is 15 feet tall, has wings, takes her up. and I mean, it's really far out, right? I mean, this is beyond where even I could go, but she's a person of very solid... <laughs> Uh, uh, sound mind. Uh, she's also had encounters with other more delicate snake-like beings and she's played a role as a diplomat as kind of leader of a, of a, of a sort of snake tribe that uh, uh, makes peace among the reptilians. Um, she described a friend of hers who had a reptilian relationship a, a guy she calls Mick and he apparently confronted one of these alien beings. He said, man, you're ugly. And the alien said, you should see what you look like to us. <laughs> <laughs> now, she has had herself a very powerful connection with uh, an alien race that became extinct. Now, uh, Barbara Lamb, where are you, Barbara? Barbara is here. Barbara has done um, regression with uh, this person, and uh, I want her to tell you about, uh, because this her relationship with this race came out in this, uh, in this regression, so... Uh, Barbara, would you come up and join me here?
3: This was just a few years ago, and um, I had the great privilege and pleasure and fascination of regressing, Dana, to this experience. And um, I had known that she had had experiences with them in this life, including some of the sexual experiences. So we just didn't know what we were going to go into when we did the regression. But basically the question that we asked or the issue that we focused on doing the regression was what is her connection originally, or that is what is the source of her connection with these reptilian beings And in the regression, she went to a whole scene which she sensed was a long, long time ago. She thought it seemed like it might be another planet just because of the coloration of the ground and the sky and so forth. And in this regression, she was a reptilian being. She was a male, and she was strong. As John described it, she was strong and husky and powerful and proud and straight, and she was the leader of a reptilian group of males. And in this particular happening, she was standing on top of a a tall bluff with a whole troop of these reptilian beings around her. And they were looking forward in a certain direction, off into the distance, and they could see that there was a huge wave of heat and colored light, red, yellow light coming toward them. They knew it was disaster. She didn't know if it was a nuclear blast or just what it was, but they knew that they were facing the end. And the magnificent thing about this was that instead of their buying into fear, as most of us would do and running around, you know, they, they stood firm, they linked arms, they linked consciousness with their minds. They had total telepathic communication. And she led them in having agreement that they would stand firm and receive the energy of this terrific wave of destruction that was coming to them instead of running from it or trying to avoid it. So they were getting ready to just receive it with all the cells in their bodies and their mind and all of their consciousness, knowing... That as their physical bodies would be destroyed, that their consciousness, their spirits yes, reptilians can even have spirits um, that their spirits would be surviving and would be transformed into a different dimension. And for her, she was so proud of these beings, proud of herself with all the strength that they had and the communication they had.
2: <laughs> Yeah. Uh, would you just very briefly you want to say that you're on? Okay,
3: yeah. and then there's another thing I'd like to share too, and that is an experience that happened to me personally in this lifetime just a very few years ago. I had already been doing a few years of regression work with experiences of extraterrestrial contact including experience with some reptilian contacts, and one day having done some appointments or whatever, I was just walking through the living room in my house and suddenly, pop, right in front of me, to my enormous surprise, was a reptilian being. He was a little bit taller than I. Now, normally in this life, if I had seen a reptile of any kind, even a little one, you know, in my living room, (laughs) I would have been really freaked out. I'm not very comfortable with reptilian beings. But anyway, with this experience, conscious, awake experience, I saw this reptilian being standing in my living room. I went right over to him, extended my hand, held his hand, looked into these beautiful, I thought they were beautiful, golden-colored eyes with a little vertical um, eyeball, little pupil, kind of a lightning strike. And that's all that I remember consciously. But a few weeks later, I had a past-life therapy colleague of mine uh, do a regression on me to see if there was anything more to that experience. And to make a long story short, in the few minutes that that reptilian being was there, he said to me telepathically, as we continued to hold hands, and I can still remember the feeling, the physical feeling of that hand, thick and strong, and not creepy. I was surprised it wasn't creepy. And um, he reassured me that he is an ambassador from somewhere else, an ambassador representing many, many different extraterrestrial beings who come and interact with human beings. And he was here to tell me, as somebody who regresses people to these experiences, and sometimes because of my Growing up in my conditioned mind, I wonder, could this really, really, really be true? It certainly seems as if it is. But he wanted to reassure me for the sake of all those different species who come here that yes, indeed, they do really exist. They do come here. They come here very quickly into our awareness, and they pop out. They disappear from our awareness very quickly, and that it is a very meaningful phenomenon and that we have no idea how important we are. That's you and me. All of us are to them. Uh, so for me, that was a very positive experience. And then just suddenly, pff, he was gone, and I went on with my rest of my day.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. no. Uh, you know, if she ran into an unkind, uh, I don't need this, she ran, do I, no, if she ran into an unkind talk show host, you know what they, what they. you okay. know, yeah, but we're, you know, we're among friends here. Now, how, um, next one, next, yeah, what are the ways we might think about these encounters? This gets into the example of, illustration of what I've been talking about earlier on in the lecture. Um, there's the literal, and I'll take each of these individually. The literal, individual psychological way of looking at it, biology, the phylogeny, that is going back where we came from originally, collective unconscious, the symbolic, metaphysical, myths and religion, or some combination of the above. Now the literal approach is, you know, they're reptile, reptilian beings, they're here, they're coming, they're doing whatever they do with us. Uh, they mate with us, or they uh, relate warmly with us, or they do cruel things, but they're real, they're here, and the literal approach would have to, and that's, that's there's a lot of truth there. The literal approach would also include the conspiratorial paranoid approach to the reptilians, which uh, you've probably heard about, uh, that they're here to take, they're taking us over, and, uh, and I, I don't want to attribute that, but you know who the people are that are really into the, reptilian takeover uh, way of of going about this. Individual psychodynamic. Well, that has to do with the fact that this represents the repressed desires uh, for some kind of powerful uh, instinctual sexual relationship on the part of the individuals. I, I won't even do anything with that. The Biology, we do have a brain. The brain stem is thought of as reptilian, the lower... Uh, instinctual parts of our brains are uh, very similar to the reptilian brains. Uh, we are, uh, they're, they're, uh, what our relationship is to the dinosaurs and the early reptilian beings, the crocodiles and other reptilians are still here. Uh, what, uh, in terms of the evolution of species, uh, what is the um, biology, phylogeny of that. The collective unconscious, this would have to do with Um, ideas that are in our deeper souls, unconscious, that are common to people all over the world, uh, which would include uh, certain kinds of uh, images, including uh, the the reptilians representing all the different things we've already mentioned, uh, powerful instinctual connections with primitive aspects of ourselves and so forth. Now, I mentioned transpersonal psychology because... I found my own training in this area very valuable in doing this work. What this means essentially is that our um, our um, being, our ourselves, is not limited to this physical body. In fact, our consciousness can travel. It can go through time and space. It can go back into the time of the dinosaurs when they were. Uh, uh, became extinct, that can go into other dimensions of reality. In other words, that it can go into past lives, it can go into identification with almost any element uh, in in the universe. And this is associated with the work of Stanislav Graf and um, is something that I... Well, it doesn't make sense to recommend anything to anybody at this point, but uh, I think it is important to at least know the fundamental notions about transpersonal psychology because I think it is a... Um, a major departure from traditional psychology and for me it 's been helped me immensely in trying to in some way get myself around this uh, whole reptilian phenomenon metaphysical symbolic um, i won 't dwell on that it has to do with uh, the symbolisms of and forms that uh, seem to have reptilian or snake like uh, forms um, the um, Emperor Constantine when he um, converted to Christianity. They showed him um, with a uh, uh, his symbol was a sword uh, killing a serpent. Um, there are archetypal snake and spiral forms uh, throughout nature. The um, uh, in medicine the uh, the caduceus is a are snakes uh, uh, surrounding the. Uh, staff of, of Hermes. Um, similarly, there are symbols of transformation in alchemy, which have to do with reptilian energies, with with um, the Ouroboros, which is a a snake biting its own uh, tail, which uh, represents a transformation. Um, now, the mythico-religious uh, area again, this relates to the collective unconscious. Uh, Dragons, uh, serpents, have a... I'll take these quickly one by one. Um, Dragons and serpents show up in almost all the mythologies of the planet. Um, In the pre-Greek Mycenaean and Minoan mythology, they are creator-nurturant figures, but little by little in Greek and later... Christian, and uh, Islamic uh, mythology, the dragons, they may be guardians, but they also become, uh, they lose their protector function, and they become uh, seen as more dangerous, destructive uh, figures. Um, Although, there's always a kind of ambivalence about dragons. They're they're sort of wonderful, and beautiful, and creative, but they're also dangerous, and and threatening, and uh, Again, what, the, how they, what they represent in terms of our own uh, deeper selves is an important question. Um, you all, you know, we're flooded these days, especially these days, which is an interesting question of of um, fascination with uh, dinosaur, uh, dinosaurs, uh, crocodiles, reptiles of all sorts, monsters, uh, Godzilla, um, the Komodo dragons, there's lots of TV specials. I never heard of them until recently. Uh, other other reptiles. Um, some cultures think that uh, dinosaur bones when they discover them are, are actually really dragon bones. There are uh, creation myths involving cosmic battles between uh, reptilians. There are reptilian ancient astronauts and many creative uh, uh, myths. Um, Rene Boulet was a... Uh, Ted Strain and Paul Price have written a book, uh, came out in 1990, called Serpents and Dragons, The Story of Mankind's Reptilian Past. Until I got into this work, I never would have taken this seriously. Um, but they talk about, uh, in the cultures, Egypt, India, Norse, Celtic, Sumerian, early, uh, even a Babylonian Christian, there are creation myths that involve uh, Great giant lizards and dragons that are the ancestors of humans. The dragons having intercourse with women and producing offspring that are the are heroes. Uh, you can. There's a huge mythology on this. Uh, there's a um, a challenge, however, to. Um... There was. <laughs> it's kind of amusing on the uh, Amazon. Uh, uh, website. Um, I tried to. Learn, I couldn't get this book, but I tried to uh, learn more about it. And there was a lot of people had very positive reactions, but there were some negative ones. You know, they give stars. Well, this guy didn't like this at all. Uh, he gave one star. Other people gave it four, three. You know, and he he said he he was objecting to the um, the attack on scripture. He said. Uh, we should accept that, he, he's challenging this, he, the, the writers, should, we're supposed to accept that scripture is a watered-down attempt to explain the mysterious in mythological terms, but that Sumerian texts are exacting always to be taken and interpreted literally. Has this guy considered that what he takes so literally may also be an effort to explain in mythological terms something that the writers of Sumerian texts couldn't fathom in terms they could understand? Just because an ancient carving depicts a person ensconced in feathers or reptilian attire doesn't literally mean that there were such creatures. Fair enough. So I just wanted to put that in there uh, as a kind of sobering thought. Um, uh, Bud Hopkins uh, correctly, I think, brings up the risk of what he calls a stew pot thinking, which is how you take lots of things, you put them all together as if they're all one thing. Probably it's okay if the stew, you know, is or uh, eatable, but uh, there, there is... Uh, I am bringing a lot of things together that may or may not fit, just to show how the in the mythic history of of uh, the human race, the, the reptilian figures uh, uh, play a major role, and so when the experiencers have a strong connection with the reptilian past and actually encounter real reptilian beings, it makes this more... Uh, more relevant. And then, there, of course, are the serpent gods, Quezal uh, um, uh, Cotal, and the Aboriginal rainbow serpents. And um, the snake itself is sometimes thought of as representing immortality because it can shed its, its skin and, and so forth. Um, one of the, the um, experiencers that I've worked with uh, quite closely, has gotten very interested in this whole subject, has gone to uh, some of the uh, uh, Christian pagan churches like Rosslyn in Scotland and where there is a, a strong there's strong dragon and snake symbolism. And this dragon is often depicted as representing the masculine energy and the snake uh, as the feminine energy is, for example, in the... Uh, in Eastern philosophy, the Kundalini energy, which is like a coiled snake at the base of the of the spine. Now, in uh, Judeo-Christian, or particularly Christian uh, mythology in Western culture, the 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 serpents don't get a very good rap. Um, uh, the Gnostics, uh, which is kind of the rejected part of Christianity, they uh, they uh, talk about the uh, archons, which are uh, reptilian beasts which have a reptilian body, heads like a lion, and they're kind of a predatory, uh, dark uh, race. Um, Medusa, snakes that are terrifying, what happens? What happens if you look at the snakes and Medusa? You turn to stone or something like that. Really bad rap. Uh, um, I mean, the snake. Look what happens right in the beginning. The snake in, is blamed for everything. And sometimes in some mythologies, the the snake is a serpent dragon kind of figure, not not a nice snake. And uh, and there are even some uh, interpretations of the the Bible that say Adam was. Uh, Descended from uh, is part reptilian himself. Uh, I will not get into trouble on that one. If I, um, the devils and the demons in Christianity are uh, often shown as having reptilian and uh, dragon, serpent-like uh, qualities, and then of course you know about the um, the uh, sort of heroic attacks that have gone on on reptilian beings throughout. Uh, early Christian mythology: Saint Patrick's great achievement of getting all the snakes out of Ireland. Saint George is the patron saint of, of uh, England, who uh, from originally from Cappadocia in Turkey. But he interesting. I got to talk to Haktan about that. Um, but the, uh, he, you know, of course, the battle that he won with the with the dragon, and then Beowulf, which is a little less well known, but which is that Beowulf is the first. Uh, Western epic poem. And Beowulf is a great hero. And what does he do? This smelly dragon is threatening the kingdom and his mother, too. And Beowulf goes and he crushes this dragon and destroys it. And uh, then he uh, goes and he destroys the dragon's mother just to make sure. And uh, and then later on, the uh, dragon serpents actually end up destroying the kingdom where, where he's from. Um, there is a huge contemporary interest in dinosaurs, as as you, uh, I'm sure, uh, are all aware. Um, and uh, I sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I, I wonder what is that about? You know, all the movies and the fear of T-Rex. I mean, when I was a child, this was, we were interested in dinosaurs, but not like now, you know, and then you get a figure like Barney, right? I mean, I pity the parents here. I don't know if Barney's still on so much, but, but the, this pink little dragon that can't hurt anybody. I mean, what anxieties is that dealing with? That, that that's a, such a. The children are so focused on, on, on Barney. And of course, the, uh, Barney is just the opposite of the kind of threatening dragons that you get in, um, in Jurassic Park and um, the likes of that. Um All right, how do we put all this together? Now th- this well, I really can't put it all together, but I uh, <laughs> But the experiences are real. They're also mythic. They reflect something deep in our own uh, unconscious, our own uh, instinctual natures. They have a powerful mythic dimension, uh, which does not contradict the fact that they're real. Uh, They also, this, I think, this is a hypothesis, that this tremendous interest now that's happening in the reptilians represents a return of the repressed dimension of ourselves, which does not mean that there aren't real reptilian beings. You see that either orness that we've gotten into, it can be uh, both. Um, The internal and external, present and past, real, physical, and mythic. And perhaps some meaning for our culture in terms of what we've been hearing in this conference about the need to come to terms with everything about ourselves, including the darkest, most powerful, instinctual, sexual, aggressive forces. Uh, And that may have something to do with why this is such a contemporary uh, subject. Now, before concluding, I want to get to the hard science uh, part of this uh, talk, Hey, this
0: is Mike. I'm chiming in here. What happens is John Mack is presenting a handful of slides, which are written words, and uh, they get some funny laughs from the audience. You can't see them because this is just the audio, and I'm looking at the visual, so I'm going to read along to what the slides
2: actually say. This is how you can really know you've been abducted by aliens. This is, uh, is, uh, is uh, hard edge, absolutely, uh, multiply-witnessed and certain. Number 10. You
0: went to sleep in Manhattan and woke up in a cornfield in Illinois. Number nine, you think Roswell is the most sophisticated show on television. And number eight, hybrid roses bring out your maternal instincts.
2: I have to thank a couple. I have to thank a couple of people on the staff for this. I don't know if they would want to be named. Number
0: seven, someone installed runway lights in your backyard. Number six, AT&T's slogan, Reach Out and Touch Someone, makes you break out in a cold sweat. Number five, you are sure Judy Garland was referring to the Pleiades when she sang Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Number four, life hasn't been the same since Mulder left the X-Files. Number three, you tried to use Passport to the Cosmos as positive ID at the airport.
2: I didn't put this in. He, he, He did.
0: Number two. Your colonoscopy exam seemed eerily familiar. And the number one reason why you believe you've been abducted by aliens, somehow you've accumulated over 30 billion frequent flyer miles.
4: All
5: right.
2: All right. someplace here I have written down some conclusions, which I don't really need to write down. Um, I, I want to relate this is, might seem like a bit of a stretch, but not to me. I want to represent, relate all of this to the what I said I was going to talk about, which is the world crisis of polarization, dualistic mind and, and that sort of thing. Um, 9-11, the destruction of the environment, all of this. I think it is relevant, and uh, Carla Elizabeth Rui I don't know how. What's the right way to pronounce record? Oh, that's easy. She talked about the war of good and evil uh, that uh, goes on in uh, a number of mythologies, but then she made the point, or the light and dark, that this is a limited kind of war, and that the much greater challenges would be the integration of our own darkness, our own reptilian beings, those elements in ourselves. She even, remember, she made the remark, which just knocked me, hit me hard, in the last days the dragon will thrash its tail. This integration involves an expansion of who we are as spiritual beings. Now, the UFO phenomenon is about as powerful a way that I know or a powerful shattering of the linear mind that I know, opening up of consciousness. You just have to know an experience or to know that this is true of of, of them. Um, It requires, as I've described in several ways, that we live in paradox, not either or, but this and this real and mythic, personal and collective, inside and outside. The UFO phenomenon connects us beyond ourselves with all beings, terrestrial and extraterrestrial. It opens us to a connection with nature, all of nature. Uh, It is the ultimate, along with many other anomalies, but it is the most powerful one I know to transcend the dualism, the polarity of the way we generally have come to think. It's not exclusive to the West. Polarized thinking is part of the human way of thinking. But to transcend that thinking, to experience our connectedness to all beings, to nature, I think this is a uh, this enables us to do that if we use it that way it's a, it's a possibility that has been that is there i'm not saying that's what it is i don't know what it is but i think it offers us that possibility okay uh, we have time for 20 uh, 20 minutes of right 15 20 what do we have Okay, so I'll stop there, and let's have questions. Thank
5: you. For, thank you for wonderful... Presentation. I agree with you that we the Islamic peoples, Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, Sikhs, Christians, and others all have the possibility to become good guys, wonderful guys. There should be no enemy. We all should love each other. As a Christian, I condemn no guy to be evil but in reality our world contains an appalling an enormous amount and variety both of suffering and of evil,
2: perhaps. Do you, you have a question that you, you, you I mean <laughs> I, yes, I, you're yes, saying yes. very interesting things but I think we're going to mm-hmm. have to uh, you know, give people a chance to ask questions and do, do you have a, a question?
5: Yes. Okay. And perhaps our uh, no century rivals our ours for the magnitude of either. So I acknowledge that evil is quite real. If I don't deny it, if I deny it, I I would be a uh, liar. But. Uh, in any horrifying case, we should overcome the evil with
2: the good. What's your, where are you going? What's your question? I, know, yes. you're, I can't disagree with anything you're saying, but what is the question?
5: Uh, uh, I'm from South Korea. Yeah. What do you think of the relationship between uh, South Korea and
2: North Korea? <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, uh, I don't know whether that question is supposed to have to do with the, uh, uh, President Bush's including North Korea in the evil axis um, uh, or axis of evil. I, again, I think that that uh, declaring the evil to be totally out there to label a whole country as evil is exactly what we need to transcend. I, I think that's not going to get us anywhere so, and, it's going to alienate, in the true sense of alienate, that's the right use of that word, uh, a whole people. Uh, pointlessly. Yes, there's evil, but where is the evil? Is it a country? No. It's, it's something that is an aspect of ourselves which may be expressed powerfully by some acts that we like the 9 11 event, but there's also evil in ourselves when we destroy the wildlife of, of uh, the Arctic or plunder the. Uh, other parts of the world for the resources to feed our uh, appetites for power and whatever. Yeah.
3: In answer to his question, uh, I have found the enemy and the enemy is us. Uh, The fear within, period. Uh, We have to deal with our own fear. That's the darkness. Um, My question is this. Um, What happened to your little coalition and is there a place in the future where a little coalition of that sort can come together again where we could start uh, crossing over these mean, different I'm disciplines. Sorry. What do you mean, coalition? The, the, the different uh, scientists and people you put together in your little. Um,
2: well, we're still university. doing that. I mean, we have a, a center called the Center for Psychology and Social Change, and the PEER, the Program for Extraordinary Experience Research, is a program of that center. And we have Pat Carm, my associate, as we have a table with that literature, and it uh, would be great if you would. Get to know more about what we're we're doing because we I think we're trying to reach out uh, and touch a lot of people in uh, in, in of, of many different disciplines. So I mean it is going on. If you'd like to join us, that would be terrific.
3: Yeah, can you rattle off a website?
2: Number? Yeah, uh, www.centerchange.org.
6: Uh, first of all, Dr. May, thank you so much for coming here and thanks for, for standing up for your belief and in, in being an avant garde and in, in trying to go new places. And uh, I'm going to fire three real quick ones at you. First of all, if you had to choose uh, which is most likely that we are being studied, farmed,
2: or evolved, and you can only choose one. All three. You can't choose that. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: and and and, not or or or. No, I don't. I, I don't know. know. I think that that it can. The evolved would be not from them, would be from what we do with what's I, before us. You know, it's a very non-interventional God. I I Whatever this to, God is, uh, this creator, it's, it seems to have a kind of non-interventionist approach. To leaves leaves it to us. You know. I was
6: looking for your gut first, so I understand what you're saying, and I, I agree with you. Uh, Next question is, how many species do you think are visiting us?
2: Uh, quick, let me answer it quickly. Again, I don't go there because I don't know. Take this whole tremendous variety of reactions I mentioned to the reptilian experience, okay? It looks like there are all kinds of different reptilian beings, right? Maybe there are all kinds of matches here between the psyches of different individuals and the reptilians. That's a hard thing to get to arms around, but before I start saying there's lots of different kinds of reptilians, there may be lots of different kinds of fits going on here. Okay, real, what's the third one? Got you real quick.
6: Uh, if you take into to account the fact that the superior race has many, many different levels of, of intelligence above us, cloaking devices, travel, species, intergalactic, how do you really justify the encounter if they can create any event they want, the holographic or the quantum or the cellular division or interaction, how do you truly know what experience you had? And if you're able to quantify that, what criteria are you using? And I hope to talk to you later.
2: All right. Um, just want to make, again, a comment that, that I don't, I mean, I'm so much into this whole participatory co-creation of reality thing that I, I've, I've actually, and I, I know a lot of other researchers in this field wouldn't agree with this, but I don't think that when a person reports to you something that suggests they've had an experience, and you discover, I don't think that experience is fixed, just kind of like that little thing that was under the skin that Roger showed. We'll but uh, but uh, that, that because I've seen with the experiences I've worked with over time, not only do the experiences evolve, but their relationship to a past experience that we've already covered will evolve. So, uh, in other words, I don't think we can say the experience is this because it, it changes,
6: in other words, the real mystery lies in trying to find out what the true experience really was, it would seem to me.
2: Or maybe there is no fixity of what it was. That's even scarier, you know, to our point of view. Yeah. Uh,
6: where I wanted to go
7: is where I, I'm glad to see you raised. I felt for many years that the way our discipline's been set up, especially in humanities and also in science, the way they've been pigeonholed and categorized have been intentionally to keep us in certain little realms and that what you're doing is extremely important because the first thing we have to do to make real progress is to jump across those kind of boundaries. And unfortunately the worst perpetrator of these little cubbyholes and boundaries is the institution you work in. Because that's where the that's the head biggest university in the country funded
2: by what? The Rockefellers and so on and so well, forth? Well, let's not go there, but uh, <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> right. I, I agree. Mean, but I they, meant they, the cubbyholes. Because the I, Rockefellers I, have funded my work too, so that's Yeah, I mean Lawrence Rockefeller has actually funded a lot of very progressive movements in this oh, country. I'm not about. generalizing about the Rockefeller family. Uh, that's uh, And people have their own oh, view about that. The, okay. But again, but study
7: cubbyholing uh, science and the humanities, uh, isn't that like putting them at a dead end because there's a yeah. rivalry and a lack of communication.
2: Well, that's why I think a group like this could be so powerful because we're not we have the capacity to jump collaborate categories. to jump categories. Right. We we but the very fact that we are ventured into this kind of wild weird area shows we're willing to jump categories, but we, then we end up getting divided among our, ourselves. So that but didn't yeah.
7: these categories get defined? Wasn't Harvard among the leadership in defining these categories way back when, in the 1800s? Nah,
2: I think they've been around for... They've evolved. I don't want to blame Harvard for everything. Okay, well, you know? Yale. And <laughs> I mean, they, they dealt well, with me in some ways pretty fairly. I mean, they might you know, I might have gotten... Much worse than I did, you know? And I don't think they were trying to get rid of me, by the way. I think they just wanted to distance themselves. They distance themselves from me so that they wouldn't have to be held accountable for what I was saying. Yeah, thanks.
6: Hi. Um, I thought it was very interesting what you were saying about um, uh, the scientists having this blockage with uh, the Big Bang Theory, um, because it actually seems to represent their insistence that um, you know, matter creates thought rather than the idea that, creates matter. Um, I wonder if um, somehow they can be encouraged to focus debate on that issue or that that particular point perhaps. Um, Maybe it would encourage them to sort of expand their frame of reference and uh, then maybe sort of understand how all this works.
2: We have, um, there's a, a beautiful person on our board by the name of Trish Pfeiffer and she's not a published person or academic or anything, but she's had brilliant. She's a brilliant person, and she's had a passion most of her life with the notion that consciousness is primary in the universe, and that matter and energy come from consciousness, that consciousness is what preceded the Big Bang say, and she's got a project she started, uh, which I'm trying to help her with, to write to 30 or so Leading thinkers who would be interested in that question and have them write what they have to say about consciousness being primary and put all that uh, together as a, as a book. I mean, it's, I think it's a, a very important area. It's counterintuitive, though. I mean, I, I took me a long time to get that, that. No, man, yeah, hot consciousness. Consciousness is what we think with our brains, right? Without our brains, no consciousness. That, that's the way I was trained. I, you know, that, you know, that, that, that there's consciousness. The universe has intelligence and consciousness and creative power that isn't simply a projection of the human brain. It took a long time for me to get there, so you know, I, it's, I can't expect everyone to just get that. You know, like you got it. Okay, thanks. thanks. So much. Thank you. On the uh, reptilian image, uh, one thing,
4: couple of things I, I noticed in dealing with censorship of art and so on. For instance. Uh, The Sistine Chapel. uh, Michelangelo deliberately had a snake biting the penis of one of the Medici because the Medici had tried to censor the erotic aspects of his his painting and didn't succeed in effect. To say, and also I noticed in the 19th and early 20th century, the Boston Watch and Ward Society, which was a put band in Boston into our vocabulary he had as its symbol someone choking a snake. Could you comment on serpents in, for instance, in those contexts, particularly Michelangelo's use of a serpent attacking a, a penis as a means of dealing with uh, of of his expressing his opinions of us of, a, of a,
2: one of his would-be censors? Well, I, I can't speak for Michelangelo. I, I don't know.
1: But, I mean, uh, what do you think was going on uh, in his unconscious I, I, mind?
2: But the, 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 Thing or i resonating with what you're saying is I, I think in particularly in in uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, history that that dimension of ourselves the the snake serpent the instinctual part of ourselves uh, has to a great degree been suppressed repressed uh, whether it's by the whoever uh, and that one of the ideas that I'm as you know I'm, I'm working with here now, is that this is erupting. You cannot repress something that real, that powerful, without it coming back to you in all kinds of different forms. And I think that this whole reptilian phenomenon is a return of it. But it doesn't mean it's just the psyche. In the, it's, again, not the, it is also real in a material sense. Again, that breakdown between the material world and the mythic world, that separation we've made there, they... There, there, I have a concept which I call reified metaphor, which is that something that can be both metaphoric and physically real at the same time. Again, that's not the way I was raised to think. Yeah.
4: Yeah, this one is about dragons. Um, I've had some very positive interdimensional experiences with dragons in that what they've said is that they, they were part of the creation of the earth, um, and currently, well, they went to sleep for a while, meaning they became inactive. And in this time, when the new Earth is being created, they're waking up again. And what I've experienced with them is that they, we can work with them to recreate the Earth's pla- uh, the grid lines, the ley lines, and so on. They can work with clearing these very quickly and amazingly if we meld our consciousness with them. And I'm curious to see what you have uh, heard or experienced in this regard.
2: Well, again, I mean, I think it's useful that you... I don't know what your culture is, but I suspect it's uh, not only Western white male-dominated culture, that you have more connection with the uh, culture in which the serpent energy, the dragon energy, there's a more positive relationship to it, not, not just the male thing of, you know, suppressing it. and You know, women, uh, uh, girls, women have a... You know, this is a secret... Have a much more uh, comfortable relationship with with the actual serpents. I, I remember when I used to go with my kids to the Serpentarium in Miami. You know, and we'd go down, and the boys were all kind of scared of those snakes, and the girls just loved to wrap them around themselves. You know, and they had, and you know, but it's cultural too, in part. It's not just biological. Ken Wells, who is a writer who uh, grew up and he's written a book about his experiences in the bayous, you know, in Louisiana, which is just teeming with reptiles and crocodiles and. there's... Somebody called Crocodile Annie that everybody knew, and and uh, he would um, uh, he, he loved snakes. He said he he had talked about a big seven or eight foot serpent that he you know came to terms with. Everybody, you know, a lot of people when he go north were scared about it, but because he lived with them, he, he had a more positive relationship, and he loved to bring the snakes uh, into the classrooms, and the the girls thought it was great. You know, again, the boys, you know, they're not so comfortable with it. So I think that it's closer to the female, you know, the Kundalini energy, the basic female nurturing energy. And that I think this harsh, male, aggressive drag, that aspect of the dragon energy is, is a masculine matter. I mean, I, I'm just sort of beginning to play with this. So I can, you know, but thank you. Yeah. Hi, I have a couple
3: We're
2: questions. Done? We're done?
0: We, we have run out of time. This is Mike. I am chiming in at the very end of this uh, audio presentation. Uh, once again, I, that that um, the YouTube video where I lifted this audio from uh, ended a little bit abruptly there. You can hear it just kind of gets snipped off, and somebody says we're out of time, and click, it's over. Um, the two-hour presentation was given by Dr. John Mack, and the title was Transcending the Dualistic Mind and this was presented at the International UFO Congress in Laughlin, Nevada in 2003. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.